Hello and welcome to India Speak, the podcast by CPR, the Center for Policy Research. I'm Sushant Singh, Senior Fellow at Center for Policy Research. This series of podcasts features leading global experts and academics on the many facets of Sino-India relations. Some of them have looked at the strategic side of things, while others have focused on the military facets. But today, we will be discussing the historical and political aspects, looking at contemporary China and its relationship with India through that prism. And to do that, our guest today is a top scholar of modern international and global history with a specialization in the history of Eastern Asia since the 18th century. Professor Arnie Westard is the Elihu Professor of History and Global Affairs at Yale University. And he first went to study in China as an international exchange undergraduate student in 1979. In the first part of his career, he was mainly preoccupied with the history of the Cold War, China-Russia relations, and the history of the Chinese Civil War and the Chinese Communist Party. Since the mid-2000s, Westard has been concerned with more general aspects of post-colonial and global history, as well as the modern history of China. Currently, he is mainly interested in researching histories of empire and imperialism, first and foremost in Asia, but also worldwide. He's also trying to figure out how China's late 20th century economic reforms came into being and how their results changed the global economy. Westard joined the faculty at Yale after teaching at the London School of Economics, where he was school professor of international history and at Harvard University, where he was the S.T. Lee Professor of U.S.-Asia Relations. He's a fellow of the British Academy and of several other national academies. He has authored 16 books, which have been translated in more than a dozen languages and have won numerous awards, including the Bernard Schwartz Book Award and the Bancroft Prize. His seminal work, The Cold War, A World History, was published in 2017, a new history of the global conflict between capitalism and communism since the late 19th century. It provides the larger context for how today's international affairs came into being. His forthcoming book is about China in the 1970s, the decade that put the country on the path we see today. Ani, welcome to India Speak. Thank you very much, Sushant. It's, as always, it's a great pleasure to be with you. Uh, thank you, Ani. Same here. Uh, let me start with a question everyone asks you as a historian of the Cold War about this description of this new Cold War, which many people say this competition and confrontation between the United States and China is. Uh, from India, where I'm currently uh, currently based, that is the description one hears often, though not officially. How true is that description and how is it similar to the Cold War and how is it dissimilar to the Cold War? I think that there are more uh, differences than, than similarities. I mean, look, the... These kinds of comparisons are only useful from a strategic perspective when they make sense in terms of actual policymaking. And I think that's why we run up against some difficulties with regard to the Cold War. So the Cold War was, you know, a global uh, system of, of conflict between ideologies, uh, very different versions of, of how the world should be run on everything from, you know, political theory to, to, to practical economics. And um, it doesn't seem to me that the, the rivalry between the United States and China is of that sort. Now, the biggest differences, and these are important for India, I think, uh, are that, you know, China operates quite happily within a, a, a globalizing capitalist world system of, of economic exchange. And they actually benefited from it uh, tremendously. Uh, it's also true, I think, that you know, if you look at the Chinese perspective on things and, and even the U.S. perspective of things, even if these are 
now and are going to remain, I think, for some time, the most powerful countries within the world system. It's not a bipolar world. I don't think either of them actually believe that that's the direction that we're heading in the longer run. And I certainly don't believe it. I mean, the, the overall trend in international affairs now, and I don't really need to tell this to the Indian, uh, it's not towards increased bipolarity, it's towards some form of multipolarity. And, and the big question for us is how stable will that return to multipolarity in global affairs actually be? So these are the differences in a way from, from the Cold War. There are some similarities as well. I'm not saying that there is nothing we can learn from the Cold War as an international system. I'm just saying that the international system we seem to me to be heading towards is substantially different from the challenges that we faced during the Cold War. Uh, any of this new Cold War descriptor is mostly not true, or there are major differences from, the, from what the Cold War actually was. Are we in the danger of making this a self-fulfilling prophecy by invoking it again and again? You, know, you have heard the Chinese uh, scholars and officials use this term, uh, you know, comparing today's United States to the last days of the Soviet Union. What should we really make of it? Yeah, that's a good question. <clears throat> I'm not so preoccupied really with the self-fulfilling prophecy or aspect of this, although it can constrain uh, decision-makers thinking, particularly those who are not really all that au courant with, uh, with history, the way it actually played out. I'm more preoccupied with how it can limit our choices. Um, that were quite a few dangers we don't see. Because not, I mean, you know, when you say that this is not a new Cold War, that's not all positive. The Cold War, after all, didn't end in, in, in cataclysmic global warfare, right? While a lot of earlier rivalries uh, on a global scale actually have. Uh, but I, I also think that, you know, this idea that is pretty often seen in history that policymakers and generals are preparing to fight the last war, that there is a bit of a danger there. I mean, I think one needs to take a, a cold and hard look at realities the way they have been developing now with regard to China's rise and draw policy inferences from that, particularly strategic inferences for the, for the medium term and, and, and long term future. So that's the danger I see with using a, a simile that really doesn't work all that well. It can, it can even, as I think it sometimes does, particularly maybe in smaller countries, uh, lull you into some kind of false sense of security with regard to this. Because this, the, the, the Cold War was, after all, a relatively stable international system. Uh, I'm not sure that this system is going to be anything um, like as stable as what the Cold War was. Ani, you, you almost seem to advocate that we should be relieved if it is a Cold War, because other, otherwise the other, the other option is going back to the early 20th century you know, and what we saw in the late 19th and early 20th century. That was the, uh, the, the period of instability because of multipolarity. Is that what you're hinting at? Yes. I mean, I see more similarities between the world we seem to be heading towards now in the late 19th century than I see, at least in a direct sense, between... Uh, what we are observing now and the kind of situation that we had, particularly during the mature Cold War system, so from the mid-1950s and up to the, late, up to the late 1980s. And as you quite correctly observed, Sushant, that's not all positive. You know, we know how that rivalry ended. So managing multipolar rivalries, I think, is what we need to be thinking about now. And we're not really, you know conceptually or, or perceptually well prepared for that because we come out of a very long period uh, in which 
power on a global scale was with a with a great deal of 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 of, of correctness, I think, in terms of the approach, regarded as as bipolar and then a brief unipolar moment uh, in terms of U.S. power that followed that. So it's a long time since we've seen that kind of system, and we're not really very prepared to manage it. And Ani, why do some Chinese officials or academics or experts, uh, you know, say that this current period reminds them of, reminds them of the last days of the Soviet Union when they look at the current uh, United States? Why do they say that? First and foremost, in terms of overreach, uh, that the United States has been trying to do too many things in too many areas, starting with the 1990s, the wars in, in, in Afghanistan and, and Iraq, um, and that it doesn't have the potential, the, the economic and internal political stability that is needed in order to fulfill that kind of broad agenda. That's the reason why an increasing number, you're absolutely right about this, an increasing number of policy advisors, including people I know well, in China are drawing these kinds of these kinds of parallels. I mean, that's not the same thing as saying that they believe that this will be a rerun of the Cold War, but it's just pointing out. And I think to some extent they're right about this. Uh, you know, some uh, similarities between what the Soviets got terribly wrong towards the end of the Cold War and what the United States have been engaging in over the last two decades. And nobody has studied Soviet Union or the decline, demise of Soviet Union better than the Chinese. They've, they've been obsessed with it. Yeah, there is an, uh, there almost a national, or certainly a, an inner party, inner communist party obsession. That is the right term with, with the collapse of the Soviet Union. And uh, again, for understandable reasons. I mean, it's very interesting this because it started out as being a sort of communist party like for like comparison, right? They were preoccupied with this because they were afraid that communism in China would suffer the same fate as communism in the Soviet Union. And then gradually, as China you know, faced a lot of problems, but not necessarily the same ones that the Soviets came across in their last decade, um, the construction of the, of the parallelism seemed to go in the opposite direction towards the United States. And thinking maybe we are seeing a shift on a global scale where the remaining of the two superpowers uh, is running into some of the same problems as the former Soviet Union did towards the end of its existence. So, uh, let me just say, um, for the sake of, of the overall framework here, Sushant, that I don't agree with that analysis. But, 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 but it's interesting to see that the Chinese, that some Chinese, yeah, increasingly are drawing that comparison. Uh, Ani, you first went to China in 1979, uh, more than four decades ago. What is it since then that has remained unchanged about China? Because China has changed so much. And what has changed significantly, something which strikes you very, very obviously. And, you know, I'm particularly trying to refer to something like the Chinese nationalism. Is this, Does it still remain the same or has it has it changed? And why I'm curious about this, because you have a view of the Chinese economic reforms and what happened in the last four decades, uh, which is very different from the very popular view that goes around, because you have, you have written about it, you've stated it, that it was to create a very strong state to prepare itself against the fear of the Communist Party losing out, being eradicated by the West, and so on and so forth. So what has really remained, what has changed and what has remained unchanged in China that strikes you immediately? Well, it's, it's far easier, Sushant, to, to talk about what has changed, because most things have changed, right? They... When I first arrived in China in the late 1970s, it was a dirt poor and terrorized society, you know, right after the, right after the Cultural Revolution, um, where people 
inside their own homes were, were deadly afraid of what the government could do to them, or sort of day to day. You know, people were hauled away and, 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 and sent to labor camps or, or executed for very little reason. So, you know, in that sense, uh, from a Chinese perspective, surely uh, the changes, the progress has been immense and it's mainly been positive. And I, you know, I would agree with that. Uh, China is, is not only immeasurably richer, but it's also much freer in terms of people's day-to-day behavior than what it was, you know, more than 40 years ago. Nationalism has increased, has increased massively. Uh, I'm not even sure back in the 1970s if you can speak of a Chinese nationalism in a sort of narrow sense. I mean, there were some elements of it, but it was still a sort of civilizational or, or cultural or, for that matter, imperial kind of thinking about themselves and the outside world. That has changed. I mean, today it's about what it means being Chinese. And being Chinese means being what they prefer to call Han Chinese, right? So it's an ethnic definition <coughs> of what it means to be Chinese. It's a, as the the Germans would have said, you know, prior to 1914, it's the Blut und Boden version. It's the blood and land, blood and soil version. So <coughs> obviously that has changed quite a bit. But I mean, what has changed most, of course, is China's pure capacity. I mean, this is the greatest uh, period of economic growth uh, and transformation that any country has gone through in history. I mean, even if we compare it to the United States and, and before that, Great Britain, this is happening on a scale that is, is entirely unprecedented and with a speed that is entirely unprecedented. And that's, of course, the biggest change with regard to this, that a lot of Chinese leaders, including President Xi, have now concluded that China has arrived, that this is China's moment. It's not about what's going to happen in the future anymore. It's that China has risen, uh, not on everything. I mean, there is more uplift and, and, and rise to do, but it has arrived as a, uh, as a global power and as by far the strongest power within its wider region. And that region, as you will be aware in the Chinese mind, um, runs from uh, the Persian region, uh, uh, areas east of Caucasus, and all the way to Korea, Japan, and and Indonesia. So, you know, it's a pretty large region, uh, and that's where their focus is going to be, and that's where the current Chinese leadership is determined to be the preeminent power. And Ani, a bit about the economic reforms and the and the uh, and how how do you see it as being different from what the popular narrative about about Chinese economic reforms and the trajectory that it took is? So I think you already alluded to this, Rishant. The the, the um, start of the economic reforms was, of course, entirely about rescuing the party from its own disasters in the past, uh, from the Cultural Revolution. <coughs> from, from the, the very negative economic effects <coughs> of the first two decades, almost three decades of, of Communist Party rule, uh, and move it in the direction of economic growth for the sake of rescuing the, the, the one-party dictatorship. This wasn't about you know, markets and international interactions and, and, and capitalism, uh, the use thereof, for its own sake, it was <clears throat> about making uh, China rich and strong and thereby allowing the political system to survive um, as a dictatorship uh, unchallenged.
Now, it hasn't been unchallenged, we've seen that, but overall the operation has succeeded, and, and that's what Xi Jinping is drawing the benefits from now, uh, internally within China, in the sense that his legitimacy comes out not of the correctness of Marxist-Leninist propositions about how to rule society and build a party, it comes out of the successes of economic growth and, and, and the trickle-down effect that there has been of that to most Chinese, not all. <clears throat> China still has a massive uh, poverty problem, as you know, in, in, in some provinces. But it also has a vast middle class with a, with a buying power that is you know, similar to the least developed areas of the European Union um, and moving on from there. I, I wouldn't be surprised if within a decade, the Chinese middle class, which probably now is about seven to 800 million people, uh, would have a buying power that would come very close to the European average. And, and you know, that is, a, that is a remarkable effect of this. But we just shouldn't kid ourselves into believing that this is undertaken simply for the general welfare of the Chinese people. It's, it's undertaken to keep the party in power. You know, you mentioned President Xi, and I wanted to ask you about uh, President Xi, who is seen as this very powerful dictatorial figure, alone controlling everything. There's great media interest in him, you know, Western media, uh, international media features, uh, stories about President Xi and what he's like. But you have pushed back against that understanding, arguing that China is a party dictatorship and not a personal dictatorship. The phrase, if I'm not wrong, that you have used is that Xi represents the party's consensus view taken to the extreme a view of the party elite that existed even before he took over. Uh, what is the significance of this view and how should we look at it? You know, for, some, for a country like India, what does it really mean? I do think that this is important. I mean, the, this tendency that you see particularly in the West and particularly in the United States of personalizing um, most things, and, and in this case, personalizing the Chinese dictatorship to just be about Xi, is in my view entirely wrong. It's even to some extent dangerous because it assumes that if there is a change in leadership, China would go in a very different direction. That's not true under the current circumstances. I think uh, there is a consensus view and, and which is very, very close to the one that President Xi uh, represents. I also think that uh, in terms of how policy is formed, that this is not a personal dictatorship. It, it very much comes out through discussions and debates at the higher ranks uh, of the party. She is definitely, you know, the first among equals in the in the political standing committee. Um, but he needs to consult with that group and with the full with the full Politburo. Um, we are seeing that now. I just heard from Beijing that, you know, they spent a lot of time um, inside the Jungnan High, the leadership compound. Um, with their advisors now discussing Ukraine and what you know what should be the Chinese policy in case of a of a Soviet uh, invasion or even significant incursions into into Ukraine. So you know this would not have been the case <clears throat> if this was a personalized dictatorship where she would make all the decisions. And I, I think it's important to be aware of this if you think India. For, for many reasons, the most important one is that one has to pay attention to Chinese policymaking and try to figure out as much as one possibly can about it. I mean, that all of this is down to the whims of one dictatorial ruler is a, is a dangerous proposition because then you can easily get locked into uh, never-ending truths that may actually turn out to be wrong if the policymaking process in China goes in a different direction. So it's a sort of 
behold and beware kind of <laughs> exhortation really on the uh, on on the indian or or, or us side you know ani you mentioned the soviet union invasion of ukraine you know that's a historian speaking because it's now russia not the soviet union right <laughs> not the soviet union indeed, indeed. this is the this is what the mind is no, full of yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know coming to the ongoing border crisis uh, with with india which has gone on for now last 21 months you know what to your minds are the driver of this crisis from the chinese side and i'm asking you this because you know we've discussed this earlier when we met at new haven because top pla officials have been complaining to you about india even before this particular crisis began in the spring of 2020 what exactly is their complaint of from india what is their view of india what have you heard from beijing and from the pla this is where i think we first have to take a step back in terms of the overall um uh, chinese meaning chinese communist party understanding of india as as a uh, country in terms of its origins and its 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 historical role i think the main point here uh, those go back to the 1940s and <coughs> early 1950s where it was really hard for the ccp then just having come into power itself to start thinking about india as an independent actor uh you know to its to its south and and, and to its west um the idea that india was somehow still beholden to still connected to um british imperialism was very very strong in china and this is some of these attitudes have been handed down in in quite a remarkable way we have talked about this before in terms of at least coming right up to the current generation of of leadership i mean in you know uh, not not that many years ago in in private conversations when i was and this was this was not a, a sort of construct but it 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 came from came from the heart i think with some of my chinese interlocutors they were wondering you know what kind of country is india you know how is it more one of them said i don't think this is let me preface this by saying sushant i don't think this is true for that whole generation of chinese policy makers but i remember clearly one of them asking me you know is india really a country or is it something that is put together you know by 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 british imperial expansion a kind of haphazard post colonial uh, concoction i don't think that is the majority view among chinese policy makers but as a starting point that kind of doubt that kind i mean between doubt and puzzlement is something that i think it's it's important to be aware of when when you then look at india's tremendous successes in 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 keeping you know not only keeping its its national integrity in order but also in terms of of developing its political system and its and and its economy i think that's something that the chinese do not fully understand the chinese leadership doesn't fully understand now with regard to the pla i think because this goes back to the 1962 war and it goes back to the kind of strategic thinking that the PLA has PLA leadership has had in a broad sense about uh China's border areas so uh, there, there was this sense that with regard to India that you know as the predictions of of Indian weakness which i think came out of 1962 did not fully hold up right i mean particularly when you get closer to our own time that more attention needed to be paid to the border areas and and to potential conflict with with india and i, I you know you've seen this particularly over the past decade it's quite obvious that there are some 
um, parts of the PLA uh, leadership now for, for two generations of, of top leaders within the Chinese military who have been very deeply preoccupied with, um, with Indian affairs, been very preoccupied you know, with the relationship with Pakistan. Uh, beyond, I think, what, what you should imagine if, if, if there had been a clear understanding on the Chinese side of the role of India uh, that, that it should be being called for. Now, you could turn this around, as you know well, Sushant, to say that, you know, if that is the case in parts of Chinese policymaking, it's, of course, even more the case in India in, in terms of a, a preoccupation with and sometimes even an obsession uh, with relations with China. So this goes in both directions. But it's important to be aware of this broader background, I think, for the relationship. Uh, so the complaints which you hear from the PLA about India, about India's attitude, India's approach, uh, are they flowing out of this construct that you mentioned of the, the, the prism that they see through the imperial prism, that India is a handmaid, handmaiden of Western imperialism, or as Mao used to say, Nehru is a running dog of British imperialism? Or Western imperialism is—is is it because those complaints are flowing out of the construct, or are those complaints totally different in nature? Are they more tactical, more operational in nature? So the funny thing here is that they are both. I mean, they—they—they they, they come out of that deeper background. Some of the even some of the vocabulary uh, refers to that deeper background. Um, but they're, of course, they're also connected to what the Chinese leadership, and particularly its military leadership sees as possible and desirable in, in the relationship to India. I mean, these two can easily, easily go together. I think what makes it problematic from a Chinese perspective is that these uh, um, constructs, these ideas of a weak Indian state um, preoccupied with its internal development troubles for a very long period of time and maybe not being cohesive enough to carry out a sustained uh, strategy in, in, in foreign policy, never mind military terms, that that has turned out not to be true. And I think that's one of the challenges from a Chinese perspective is to get one's head around that, uh, you know, that India now is, um, is a real rival in these broader regional terms that I pointed out, and perhaps the main rival, right, within this, within this region. So if the Chinese aim is for broader strategic reasons to become the predominant power within this very large Eastern Asian region. Well, you know, it's hard now, I think, in a realistic sense from a Chinese perspective, not to draw the conclusion that perhaps the main hindrance on the way there too is India, uh, more, than, more than any other country, particularly if you believe, as these people do, in uh, a, a gradual uh, U.S. Uh, decline, and that Japan is not going to step up and, and be a, a regional rival um, to um, to China. And you know, if you then uh, hope, as they do, that their relationship with Russia will continue to improve along the lines that we've seen recently, that only leaves India. And it's it's very important from an Indian perspective to be aware of that. Um, you know, that, that's not necessarily something I'm saying to predict endless conflict between China and India in the future, but it is very important, I think, that, you know, for many Chinese policymakers, the attention to India has turned. So I used to joke in the past that, you know, um, maybe a decade ago or 15 years ago, uh, especially when I was in Delhi, that 
you know, in Beijing, not all that much thought was given to 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 India, and that on the on the Indian side, there was this almost obsession with China and, and with China's growth, and there was a disparity in terms of in terms of foreign policy making as a result. Well, that's not true anymore. I mean, that is one of the changes that we talked about. Uh, now there is considerably more attention to India in, in Beijing, much more than I have ever seen before in the time when I've been visiting the place. Uh, so, you know, speaking of this, what can India now do to deal with China? You know, China is still India's biggest trading partner and by a long way. That is a dependency which is not going away. The Quad seems to be, you know, one of India's options, but it is irking China. India's delicate balancing act between Russia and the United States is also, you know, uh, is, is a tricky one. Very hard, very hard balancing act to, to, to perform, to follow. Uh, and as the largest Chinese neighbor, biggest Chinese neighbor, it is under serious pressure. Now, Ani, what would you advise to Mr. Modi if he calls you up? Other than I know that you would advocate strengthening of internal democracy in India. Other than that, what would you? I would. I would uh, certainly emphasize that one of India's main strengths is its functional democracy, its freedom of speech, its uh, ability to move. And this is one of the things that has really surprised the Chinese. We move in the direction. Of a, of, of, a, of a very functional, very capable state um, that includes people of, of different national origins and different faiths. And, and strengthening that, not moving away from it, is perhaps India's biggest overall strength in, in a long-term rivalry with China. But other than that, I would say China, you know, given what's happening now uh, within the region and, and China's rise, it is very clear to me that India has to play a greater regional role on its own terms, not as a, as a, as a member of, of the Quad beneficial, as I think that is overall for, for Indian, Indian national security, or in terms of, of links, building further links with the United States. India has to go further in realizing that it is not just in terms of its own significance and power, but in the eyes of others, first and foremost, the, the Chinese, a, a very significant regional power for this region that I tried to define in, in our conversation today, Sushant. Uh, and that means having a, a, a much more active, uh, much more outreach-oriented policy with regard to Southeast Asia, which is going to be one of the key areas of, of rivalry over the, over the next generation, and perhaps the most important region for economic growth, almost in a in a worldwide sense, in, in, in my view. Uh, it means building much stronger relations with Japan than what has, been the, what has been the case in the past. It means attempting, although this is going to be very difficult, um, alongside the rest of us, to point out to the Russians that they are put, really putting themselves in, a, in, in an impossible strategic position by, by throwing their weight so squarely behind China's rise as they are now doing. Um, if you look at this, uh, you know, even half a generation from now, um, with the overall reduction that you see in, in, in Russian power overall, I think, uh, you know, the, the, the problem is going to be that uh, Russia is going to be so beholden to, so connected to uh, China that it will almost be an appendix of Chinese power in the longer run. Is that really in Russia's own interest to do. And India, of course, has privileged relations with Russia that come out of the historical links with the Soviet Union in the past and with Russia in the early days of the new Russian Federation. So I think 
you know, these are the things that India needs to do. I think we need to see much more, uh, in, in terms of security, much more of an Indian engagement abroad. And I know this goes against many of the traditions in terms of Indian foreign policy and security policy. But I think the time has come for a much more active role. Um, I think even, you know, if you think about this from a Beijing perspective, I think it is something that the Chinese in many ways expect to happen, right? And if it doesn't happen, uh, if, if India pulls back more from these kinds of issues, I, I think that will lead to a, a, not to a more positive, but perhaps an even more negative view of, of, of the overall uh, Indian position and, and strength in Beijing. Yeah, Ani, there are two points on this. One is uh, the Indian dependence on Russia more than just historical ties is also because of the um, very strong military relationship. Almost 60% of Indian military imports, spares, equipment, ammunition is still dependent on Russia. It's a very practical problem for the uh, for the for the Indian military, Indian security secure, security establishment. And secondly, as far as the cooperation in the region, whether it's security or otherwise, uh, India needs to develop that economic strength, the economic wherewithal. In the last few years, Indian economy has not done as well as it was doing a, a decade a decade earlier. And I think those two challenges have constrained. Uh, uh, India to an extent uh, in fulfilling what what you would want uh, it to do, but uh, Ani, moving on to a slightly different issue, you know this uh, border crisis. Uh, China used to classify it as a territorial dispute earlier, but in the last year or so, they have now class they have now classified it as a sovereignty issue. You know, does it make this more intractable and tough to solve? What does it really mean? Why why would they now call it a sovereignty issue and not merely a territorial dispute? So the reason why some of the language has changed, and this is not just true for India, though it's been highlighted with regard to the Indian border areas more than more than elsewhere, is because of the extreme emphasis that we now see in, in China on sovereignty overall and on territorial integrity, defined down to the... Uh, to the last inch of what can be seen to be claimed as China's national territory. I mean, you see this in the South China Sea, um, you see it in a, in, in, in a number of other disputes that are, that are ongoing. Um, it is a general change in terms of how the Chinese leadership sees itself, I think, with regard to um, uh, its relations with others, and particularly on borders and, and territorial issues. I, I would warn against reading too much into it, though it is, of course, nailing one's flag to the mast in the sense that it means that no retreat is possible. That doesn't, in my view, mean that uh, no negotiation is possible. I mean, I've been among the ones, as you know, who have been arguing that th there is a potential for China and India to speak with each other, first and foremost, with regard to reduction of tension, lots of things that can be done in, in, in military terms, as you know better than me, along the disputed sectors uh, of the border but hopefully also over time go further than that. I mean, in my view, the border issues between China and India on the, on the Chinese side are almost exclusively connected to the overall relationship uh, between the two countries. And I think uh, that's, in a way, that's where you could have a little bit of hope that this tension wouldn't go get out of hand. But on the other hand, you know, that's also where the difficulties are because... You know, it's very unlikely that the relationship between China and India overall 
is going to improve massively over the next half generation or so. And that means that it's very likely that the, the border tensions will not go away and that they could even they could even get worse. So my advice has always been on the Indian side to try to see what can be done to reduce tension, what can be done even to move towards some kind of, of, of you know, beyond what we have at the moment, meaningful, meaningful negotiations, but be prepared for the opposite. And first of all, be aware, which it seems to me that some parts of Indian public opinion is not, that this issue is intimately connected to the overall relationship between India and China. And, and looking just at border issues in isolation makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah, Ani, and the rise in Indian nationalism in the last few years makes it even more tougher, more difficult. You know, your prognosis actually yeah, holds, holds even more strongly. Uh, Ani, also, I wanted to ask you, because you have observed PLA for so many years, almost decades now, uh, what, how has the PLA evolved over the years? What are the biggest areas of improvement in your view? I mean, they've evolved um, in terms of increased capacity, as you know, yeah. in almost every area. I mean, what stands out is, of course, that China now has a, an ocean-going navy, which it didn't, in effect, have up to, you know, um, a decade ago, uh, and making tremendous progress in terms of how they build and, and construct and equip uh, that navy. Its missile forces have developed beyond what most people in the military field thought was possible within a relatively short period of time, giving them a position, particularly with regard to the to the Western Pacific which goes much beyond um, what most people would have in mind. And of course, this has very immediate um, impact on the Taiwan situation, for instance, uh, in terms of a change in the sort of balance of power overall. If you think specifically about the relations with India, and particularly about the border areas, uh, of course, you know, anyone who is eyes to see have seen how um, Chinese strategy and tactics have developed in terms of the border clashes. This is not just a, you know, with regard to with regard to equipment and in terms of, of military technological capabilities. Although some of those are very important as well, including surveillance uh, uh, possibilities that were not not there before. But also in in terms of pure tactics. I mean, in terms of how the PLA but particularly the, the, the PLA elite forces and the border forces are, are strengthened in terms of how they can carry out tactical operations. That's a world away from, from what was the case, you know, half a generation ago. It, it's, really, it's really very striking, I mean, how that has developed. And I know that on the Indian side, of course, one is looking very, very closely at this, but this is an important aspect uh, of the relationship. Be aware of this tremendous increase in Chinese capabilities that we've seen uh, over the last few years. And finally, Ani, I know you knew uh, President Xi's father rather reasonably well. Any personal anecdotes about President Xi or his family that you find very fascinating and which you can share with our listeners? So I met um, Ul Xi on a couple of occasions. Uh, I wouldn't say I know him well, but I, 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 I met him. Uh, struck me as very different from his son. Um, um, probably at least in part because he had a you know had a different position. He was known um, as a bit of a of a troubleshooter and, and, and go getter in terms of uh, CCP policy. He'd he'd been exp 
he had been purged from the leadership, it is said, five times, uh, which is almost by uh, uh, CCP, um, in the CCP calculation, almost a, a world record or a Chinese record. Deng Xiaoping said that, used to say that he had been purged three times, old Xi was purged five times. So he was quite a controversial figure with, uh, within the party, very outspoken, very very direct, but also immensely respected because of what he had been able to achieve. Uh, I never met uh, President Xi, his son, and I think, you know, he comes across as much more of a consensus figure, much more as someone who is uh, trying to represent the different groups within the party and, and do so well. Um, in terms of political views, it's really very hard to say. I mean, this is one of the challenges, I think, with regard to President Xi is that he seems to come out of where the party consensus is at the higher levels. I have no doubt that he influences it, but it's very hard. I mean, unlike his father, uh, who on some of these issues really wore his heart on his sleeve, uh, it's very difficult to see how the trajectory of President Xi's thinking actually is with regard to this, except in the, in the most general of senses. Uh, that might be the kind of leader that China is looking for at the moment. Is it good for China in the longer run? I, I'm not so sure about that. I actually think a bit different from what many of our China experts are arguing, that having a leader who is able to make personal decisions that break out of the kind of framework that has been established. I mean, a leader like, like Deng Xiaoping or, 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 or uh, Xi Jinping, Xi Jinping's father, for that matter, uh, might be more called for. Uh, at the moment, at the top of the Chinese party, then the kind of very careful, do not rock the boat, consensus oriented, but still very, you know, strong arm uh, kind of policy that, that she stands for. We, we have to find out more, and hopefully we will in a positive sense, what she, uh, particularly in terms of China's domestic policy, really wants to stand for and be, and be remembered for, except increased authoritarianism and, and, and increased repression and increased conflict with the United States and others externally. What is the positive message of this? And that we, we've yet to see, I think. Yeah, but uh, but we, are, we have to live with President Xi. He doesn't seem to be going, going anywhere, notwithstanding your wish. Uh, and thank you so much, Ani. This was enlightening and I look forward to hosting you in India, pandemic permitting. It has been a great pleasure, Shushan. It is always is to speak with you and I, I, I look forward to my next visit. Thank you to our listeners for, for listening to this podcast. For more information on our work, follow us on Twitter at CPR underscore India and log on to our website at www.cprindia.org.